Investors Chronicle. Wednesday, 2nd of November, and it's another Companies and Markets podcast. Uh, welcome back, dear listener. Joining us today, Mark Robinson. Are you there? I am here, John. Are you there? I am. I am. Jennifer Johnson, I, I know you're here because I can see you. Hello. Hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. And Val Cipriani, welcome to the pod for the first time. Thank you. Hello. Lovely to have you here. Dan Jones, not your first time. You know the drill. What have, what have we got on today? I do know the drill, yeah. We have uh, a few things today. As ever, we start with a quick look at GSK and its Q3s. Then we turn to the second half of our AIM 100 feature. Again, looking at a couple of companies there. And we finish with a discussion of private equity and private equity trusts trading on some pretty hefty discounts at the moment. Let's have a quick look at some news and company results before we get to that point. British Volts, the UK startup manufacturer of lithium-ion batteries for electric cars, is battling to stave off bankruptcy. Reports today from the FT reveal that they've secured a lifeline from an unnamed investor, which should see them afloat for another five weeks, but it still leaves the business needing long-term funding. British Volt is aiming to build a 3.8 billion battery gigafactory in Northumberland by 2025. And from the brink to over the edge, Made.com has tumbled into administration and suspended its shares from trading. The company said any hopes of a rescue had been dashed. A Czech billionaire has been given the green light to increase his stake in Royal Mail. Following a review by the UK government, Daniel Kratinsky has upped his stake from 22 to 25% via his investment vehicle, Vesa Equity. BP's super profits have continued into Q3. They announced an $8.2 billion profit and another $2.5 billion share buyback. The company did specify it paid an extra $800 million in tax due to the energy profits levy. Ocado shares have jumped 22% after it announced it's entered the South Korean market. The food delivery company has struck a partnership with Lot Shopping, which has over 1,000 stores across the country. High Street Bellwether Next has maintained its profit forecast in a Q3 trading update, predicting a 2% uplift on last year. Sales for Q3 were up 0.4%. And shares in Metro Bank jumped 12% after it surprised markets with a return to profitability. Like all banks, Metro is benefiting from rising interest rates, boosting its lending margins. And finally, Federal Reserve Watch as Jay Powell and co meet again today. As we recall, we don't Quite know what's happened yet, but it's predicted that they may make history and approve a fourth straight rate hike of three quarters of a percentage point as the battle against inflation continues. Back to you, Dan. Thanks, John. So, yeah, as mentioned, we start with GSK, Q3s today. Uh, Obviously, this is a year where it's uh, divested Halion. Now, for the second quarter in a row, it's upped profits, up guidance. Jen, you've been looking at the results this morning. Is all is all now well in the world of uh, large cap pharmaceuticals? Well, on the surface, all does seem to be well. GSK's vaccine division was the real star um, of its Q3 results, beat estimates by three uh, percent. This is mostly thanks to its uh, Shingrix shingles vaccine, but also notable its HIV portfolio beat consensus estimates by about one percent, uh, with sales of about one and a half billion. 
on the kind of other side of things, its oncology franchise came in about 5% behind expectations. So I think the picture is actually a little more mixed than top-line figures might initially lead you to believe. There are some kind of structural risks with its pipeline and, and litigation, which I know we'll get to later. Yeah, as you say, Shingrits is really the 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 engine of its growth at the moment and the, the reason why these uh, upgrades are coming through. But you look at the rest of it, you look at the growth rates in the, in the rest of the company right now and, you know, that's the clear standout. There's not necessarily something immediately around the corner. Is that a fair assessment? Is it very a one-trick pony or are, are there things, you know, bubbling under? I know meningitis, for example, has got some, as we say, ambitious goals maybe, but not maybe not so ambitious because there is some growth in that, in that aspect as well. Mm. So I wouldn't quite say that Shingrix is a one-trick pony. Uh, it's definitely kind of a head and shoulders above the company's other products. But yeah, you did mention meningitis vaccine sales, about 16% at constant exchange rates. Uh, that's because of higher purchasing um, by the US Centers for Disease Control, as well as uh, a meningitis B national immunization program that's happening in France. Previously mentioned growth in the HIV franchise as well. So I think One Trick Pony uh, is a is a bit of an exaggeration, but there's no denying that Shingrix is the big driver of growth in percentage terms at the moment, which is something that the company will have to address in order to kind of keep expanding. It does need its pipeline, especially in the longer term, to look a bit more robust. Uh, one of the things it is banking on to, to do that is something we flagged in, a, in your Blockbuster Drugs feature a few months ago, the RSV vaccine. There have been some developments on that in the last few months, last few weeks as well. Obviously, it's not quite at a fully-fledged time to go out and make a lot of money stage, but but there are some positive signs there. Yeah, there are. Um, and things are kind of only getting more positive for GSK's RSV vaccine in particular. So just to kind of give um, listeners a little bit of background, RSV is sort of one of the last major viruses for which we have no um, presently available vaccine. So we've got a lot of big pharmaceutical companies are working on a vaccine, including Pfizer and Moderna. So competition in the space is going to be pretty fierce. Um, but GSK also announced today that the FDA has granted a priority review for its RSV older adult vaccine candidate, meaning that the period of review is going to be cut by several months, which is usually a good indicator. And GSK has also submitted data to EU and Japanese regulators. So I think we're due to hear back from the EU before the end of the year. And it looks like, I think this was when phase three trial data came out, I think it was last month, GSK's vaccine looked to be even more kind of efficacious than Pfizer's. So I think at the moment it's looking like um, a standout in the field. And I think the the kind of peak sales are predicted to be about two and a half billion if regulatory approvals um, all go through. So there is, you know, an element of unknown with regulators always, but things look very good. I think there is reason to be hopeful with this one for GSK. That's that's two and a half billion per year. Uh, and in peak sales, yeah. In peak sales, yeah, yeah. Well, well, one reason, you know, as we say, the guidance is up, uh, profits are better than expected. The share price reaction is, has been relatively muted. And one reason might be the continuing impact of a former blockbuster drug, Zantac. Obviously, this came in some ways the concern over Zantac and, and litigation there to an extent came out of left field a few months ago because mm. I say that 
it was mentioned, it has been mentioned in GSK and your reports for a couple of years, but it's only a few months ago people realised that, oh, this could be a big issue. And, they, and they've set aside some money in the in these results to deal with that potential litigation. Yes, they have. And I think, yeah, it did seem to come out of left field and it wasn't just GSK's share price that was affected. Mm. Um, so Zantac... Um, is a drug that was originally produced by a kind of GSK predecessor in the 1980s. And other pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer and Sanofi, have made um, versions of the drug. Uh, And it was removed from the market about two years ago because there are concerns that it contains a cancer-causing compound. And there are, I think, about 2,000 personal injury lawsuits that have been filed in the US. Um, And analysts are kind of forecasting that these could cost the companies who are implicated um, tens of billions of dollars in damages. Um, Cases will be heard starting next year. And estimates of how much this will actually hit um, GSK kind of vary. I think uh, Credit Suisse in September estimated it could cost about 100,000 US dollars per case, uh, which sort of leads to an assumption of about 5 billion of additional debt for GSK to kind of capture any potential Zantac liability. So there's no denying that that is significant. But there was, I think, when all of this kind of came to a head and and markets started reacting to this litigation risk, it was something like $12 billion was wiped off of GSK's market cap. So the actual impact versus the impact on market cap, you could say was perhaps a little bit of a, a market overreaction or kind of overcorrection. But that being said, the whole saga is likely to take years and years to play out. Um, we're not going to hear the kind of verdicts on the first cases until next year. And this does mean if you want to look from a kind of glass half full perspective that GSK's trading at a significant discount to big pharma peers at the moment. So on that on that kind of metric, I think it's perhaps worth a closer look. But if you are going to buy GSK at the moment, definitely keep an ear to the ground on the Zantac litigation stuff because it is likely to, um, you know, kind of loom large over over the share price for um, a few years to come. Yeah, this is a, obviously it's a heartburn drug, but it was interesting actually last week I was speaking to a, a healthcare investor from Polar Capital while I was speaking with them at an event, but they and they were suggesting that uh, it's actually kind of the ESG uh, mindset, which is maybe constraining GSK now insofar as the share price reaction. Maybe it was an overreaction, but a lot of that was perhaps people who have these mandates thinking, oh, well, if there's, you know, there's a there's an ethical issue there in their mind now in terms of, you know, the litigation here, and it'll be hard for them to come back until that's resolved. But it's obviously very difficult to work out what individual uh, shareholders are thinking at any given time. But as you say, definitely one to keep an eye on. Mark, GSK, any uh, any strong thoughts on the investment case for or against? Uh, the only thing that I would add, and I think uh, Jennifer alluded to it earlier on, is that there are still uh, doubts um, or some worries about its long-term drug pipeline as well. The near-term prospects look pretty good for for a few of the developments that you mentioned earlier. But uh, if you're looking at, uh, well, I, I guess there'll be some people looking at what's happening in terms of the litigation as an arbitrage uh, opportunity. Uh, but yeah, it's just that long-term uh, pipeline that we've we've highlighted in the past. And that I still, I think that remains an issue going forward. Yeah. 
Well, we shall see what happens with Zantac and with RSV and all those issues. But let's turn now to our cover story this week, which is once again our AIM 100 feature, our annual feature spread into two parts. The second half this week, we are counting down from 50 to 1 in terms of market cap on AIM. We have a look at uh, all 50 companies in the magazine. Uh, Mark, you and I again have picked out a couple of businesses to look at. Uh, Marlowe, you've chosen, which is a provider of business critical services and software designed to ensure safety and regulatory compliance. So it's very much a play on health and safety uh, mandates and legislation and things like that. The reason I, I chose it actually is, is because it uh, represents something of an opportunity for investors, a counter cyclical one. We we highlighted the the buy case uh, back in August two thousand and nineteen, and the stock then was trading just over four pounds. Uh, it's it's now up to seven ninety six, but at one point it was um, in excess of ten quid. So it's performed very well over that period. The the reason I like the stock and and why I think investors do well to look at it, particularly in the economic environment we are at the moment, is that it's a little bit like a company like uh, Experian, insofar as that the growth of the business is bound up with ever complex regulatory conditions. Uh, And this applies to the UK even after we've decoupled from the European Union as well. I spoke to a friend of mine recently, and he's a an insurance broker, but he deals specifically with uh, professional indemnity. And he made the point that that's largely uncorrelated to the general business cycle. And I think that also applies to Marlowe's business model too. So I think it's like a a good counter-cyclical or potential counter-cyclical investment options. Marlowe offers a sort of range of competencies rather than, you know, what, what is in effect a fragmented market. And that's part of the reason why Marlowe has been looking to consolidate in the space as well. And and this sort of works in favour of an embedded business model and uh, the su- support provided by a, a software as a service as well. It increases revenue visibility for companies and it helps to explain why Marlowe operates with a quite a high recurring revenue rate, around about 85%. Mm. Basically, corporate regulatory compliance, it isn't tied to the health of the wider economy. So, you know, Marlowe does present uh, a decent counter-cyclical opportunity. The other thing with Marlowe I want to ask you, Mark, is you mentioned we flagged it in 2019. Between then and now, of course, it did have a a bit of a high-profile deal activity, uh, making a bid for a company that is two places below it in the AIM 100 this year, which is Restore. Now, Restore is obviously... For those who don't know, it's a document management services company, so slightly different from Marlowe's health and safety focus, although obviously there's a shared uh, emphasis on data. That deal didn't really go down too well with shareholders, was eventually abandoned. Are there question marks to ask about management over pursuing that deal? Is it all in the past now? What do you think, Mark? Well, I just think both companies, it's at the heart of their uh, the heart of business is uh, the buy and build strategy as well. Uh, Marlowe had raised money over the last 18 months, actually, to fund uh, further M&A activities. Uh, Restore have done much the same over their history. At the time, it was, um, you know, the board of Marlowe said that it was compelling from a strategic point of view. But uh, it all came down to the price in the end. And I think it was a part cash, part equity deal. 
uh, and it, it just wasn't acceptable uh, to the board there. And it was a it was abandoned in, in fairly short order. So you I guess you could sort of question the commitment uh, of Marlow on that basis as well. Well, let's let's turn to the other uh, company which we've highlighted in the AIM 100, which is Greencoat Renewables, which is an investment trust. And the reason I want to talk about this one briefly is because it's the kind of trust which is seen as quite dull and it's seen as something which you know doesn't really shoot the lights out. But in a year like this, it's something I think is quite interesting uh, for a number of reasons. The first being, unlike a lot of the other renewables trusts, it is focused on Ireland, which means it has access to a different but equally complicated uh, scheme in terms of the subsidies and the uh, rebates it gets from the government trying to, uh, as our government, uh, are trying to prompt and encourage more renewable energy generation. So to me, I mean, it, it just seems like something worth worth highlighting. It, it effectively gives a floor on prices and gives ex- exposure to the upside. So it is slightly different from some of the UK schemes. It also, of course, means that it's not exposed to the risk of a windfall tax or a price cap, which we have seen with renewables at the moment. You could say it's offering a bit of the best of both worlds in that there's the floor on the price through the Irish government scheme, but also the trust is actually relatively levered. So some brokers have it down as the most sensitive to changes in the electricity price. So actually it can capture a lot of that upside. It trades on a modest premium to NAV. It does like to issue shares, so that uh, that should be taken into account. But it does just seem to fly under the radar sometimes. And, you know, renewables have attracted a lot of attention in recent years. But this one, perhaps not so much because of its differentiated proposition. It, it does have good geographical diversification as well, doesn't it? Because it's uh, across many of the, the larger markets in Belgium, France and Germany and the Netherlands. And so... Uh, by extension, it, it's going to benefit from levels of uh, or higher levels of uh, government subsidy too. That is actually a point uh, I was going to raise as well. Insofar as some some brokers, I saw a couple of notes the other week saying that actually moving away from Ireland is a bit more of a negative because it makes it a bit look a bit similar to some of the other trusts out there with a bit more of a geographic spread. It doesn't have as much exposure to the refit scheme or it won't going forward. I think it's just removed the 40% cap on non-Irish investments. So that's something to bear in mind as well. You know, expansion is good, but in some ways just focusing on the Irish market was working very well for it. I suppose the final thing to say on Greencoat Renewables is just to give a bit of colour on what exactly the manager is. The manager is the same company that runs the UK Wind Investment Trust, which is altogether, I think, more well-known and more popular with UK investors. Uh, partly owned by Schroeder's now Greencoat. Schroeder's is part of their attempt to diversify. So there's a decent you know, heritage, a decent grounding there as well. The only question will be perhaps you know, what windfall slash renewables taxation might look like in Ireland going forward, but that's a question all geographies are looking at right now. But yeah, so that's Greencoat. Have a look at it. Have a look at our cover feature this week. We've got a, another 48 companies beyond those two and lots of detail in there as ever. But we're going to stick with investment trusts for our final segment this week. We are looking at private equity. Uh, Val, uh, as John mentioned at the beginning of the show, first time on the podcast, welcome. Now, this is an area which has, you know, it's been beaten up for a long time, but it's been beaten up even further this year and in recent weeks, recent months. Some of the discounts to NAV are really quite extreme now, getting down to 2008 levels already. I suppose the question is for investors can you trust the NAVs to which share prices are currently discounting? Obviously, there is a lag there. 
You've written about that this week. Yeah, um, yeah, it is difficult to say because there are so many kind of moving parts and bits and pieces. So the kind of like the NADR based or at least a key metric to calculate them is multiples for comparable listed companies. So basically they will say we'll look at how similar companies in public markets have done and kind of take it from there. And so, you know, that's where the question kind of starts, because if public companies um, are going down sometimes quite steeply, it is difficult to say whether, like, what's going on with their private equivalent. And private equity trusts, they publish NAV updates with kind of like different timescales. And sometimes that happens quarterly, for example. So it is not kind of straightforward to say this NAV, you know, looks accurate. And I guess one of the reasons behind discounts being so high is that investors are not trusting them very much. On the other hand, kind of like the value of comparable companies is not the only thing that goes into calculating NAVs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for example, there's company earnings, then then there is realizations. So um, kind of like how much money a private equity trust is making from selling those companies. Um, so there are v- various kind of moving parts. And so there have been trusts that this year have already seen NAVs going down and there have been a few that, ha- a few that haven't yet. So it's kind of hard to make a sort of judgment call to say where they're going. I think speaking with analysts, the idea was that they are probably going to fall a bit for many trusts. But at the same time, it is very possible that you know, the discounts are a bit higher than the worries around valuation seem to warrant. Mm. Another concern people have, or again, probably looking back to the experience of the, the financial crisis, if we're, we're going to draw that comparison, as I seem to be insisting on doing so, <laughs> is, you know, will the trust be on the hook, the hook for pre-agreed commitments to the companies in which they invest? You know, they are the majority shareholder in these companies in a lot of cases. That could be an issue now at a time where cash is a bit bit scarcer, things like that. You know, you've, you've looked into that as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, and again, it's not, I don't have clear-cut answers on anything on this, but um, it depends a little bit because commitments to underlying companies are not kind of like set in stone. So there's quite a few trusts that actually tend to negotiate opt-out options. Uh, so they can, at least in theory, um, kind of avoid paying these commitments if push come to shove. At the same time, Obviously, it wouldn't be an ideal kind of scenario because ultimately the trusts invest in those companies. So if they those, if those companies do not get the, the kind of support that they need, the trusts are going to suffer as well. And then the other thing that is kind of worth highlighting is where the money to kind of fund these commitments comes from. So, you know, there's realizations, but there's also like some trusts will have a sort of banking facility they can fall back on. And you can look at the terms of these facilities to see if they're fixed rate or floating rate, for example, and you can see how much they've been drawn down to kind of get an idea of the liquidity that a trust has available to meet those commitments it has. Sure. Uh, You mentioned, you know, those rates and obviously the time of rising interest rates. Some of trusts, some of private equities, you know, uh, uh, focus are going to be coming into 
coming into question a little bit more, things like leverage, of course, things like using debt to borrow uh, and other examples. But it's fair to say, I suppose, that not every trust is the same and you know, not every private equity trust is, is levered up to the hilt and borrowing massively in order to, to fund these commitments. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, since we're talking about the 2008 financial crisis, I think at the time, trusts ten, private equity trusts tend to, tended to be very geared. So they tended to have like much more leverage than they have now. Mm. So to a degree, it might be that investors are being more worried about borrowing and then leverage than they need to be because it was like that at the time. But it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, borrowing and leverage, that it doesn't mean that they're not an issue because it's still kind of quite a big part of the private equity business. Um, there's private equity funds that are based on leverage buyouts and obviously leverage. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the name. So, you know, they, they do need to borrow money to do their business and it has become more expensive. So it is definitely something to sort of keep in mind. And additionally, there is the kind of level of depth that underlying companies in the portfolio will have. And that, again, will vary quite significantly from trust to trust. So usually there's some kind of information about this in the annual report. Uh, so they will tell you the kind of like depth earnings ratio of the portfolio and you can get a decent idea of the level of depth they have in their underlying companies. And that also obviously depends on kind of like what kind of companies the trust invests in and what those companies do because different companies will have different kind of funding needs and expectations. Yeah, And so it all kind of comes down to the level of liquidity they have as well. So quite a few of these private equity trusts, they do pay dividends. And so it remains kind of to be seen whether they will be able to do so in the end. And so this morning, one of the big private equity trusts, so that's Princess Private Equity, they've announced that they have suspended the second interim dividend for 2022 financial year. And they said it was because they needed to settle some currency hedging contracts. So kind of like big counterintuitively, the strength of the dollar might not play in their favor in some cases. Sure. And then kind of like they also blame it on the difficulty in carrying out sales because of rising interest rates. So again, what we were saying before about them being able to, to do business in a kind of changed debt market. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's no doubt it's definitely a tougher environment. Let's let's finish by talking about uh, similar trusts and maybe trusts with which private investors are more familiar, but ones which aren't quite the same as private equity. I'm thinking thinking here of Chrysalis and Augmentum FinTech. Uh, obviously, they, or certainly Chrysalis, has had a, a very tough year having to get involved in some huge NAV write-downs. But the nature of these trusts is slightly different from, despite the fact they invest in unquoted companies, they're slightly different from the typical private equity trust because of the way they're dependent on others' valuations. Yeah, exactly. And because they tend to invest in companies that are very kind of early stage companies, so they're high growth, they need a lot of funding, a lot of cash. And so that can result in valuations going down sometimes quite quickly. It's what uh, happened, for example, to Klarna earlier this year, uh, which Chrysalis holds. Um, so basically, you know, those down funding rounds that can see a company's valuation drop massively. I think Klarna engine went down about 85%. Mm. And so obviously that will have a big impact on the NAV 
of a trust that invest in that kind of company. And so in some ways, those, like that sector is trading at a very, very high discount level. But yeah. at the same time, it might be more justified than the kind of standard private equity. Yeah. The, the difference there, I suppose, being that that those valuations, those debt, those funding rounds are not controlled by Chrysalis. They are dependent on what others uh, value the companies at. Whereas if you're the predominant investor, you can, you know, find some ways of perhaps, you know, looking for a more generous valuation. Yeah. That's a slightly cynical uh, take on it. But there we are. Something to watch out for with uh, uh, those trusts, which are slightly different from the typical private equity structure. You can find out more about Pacific Trust's strengths and weaknesses in the piece, which is in the magazine this week. So thank you to Val for that. That brings us to the end of the show, though. So I'd like to thank the other guests as well. Mark, as ever, John and Jen. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Markets show. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.